<laughs> All right, we're going to get started. And uh, this session goes till uh, 4.30. So in that time, whenever you want to stop for questions, just let us know and we'll get her done. Are you guys all, all ready? Okay, can I open up in prayer? Father, we just lift up this session. I just ask for your hand of blessing on it as we continue to learn about genre and narrative and the Old Testament so we can be better interpreters of the Word of God. And we'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right, well, let's, uh, let's welcome Dr. McGinnis back to the pulpit. Somebody starts off a session and said, we're going to end by 4.30. I wasn't sure if that's a hint to me. Hey, dummy, make sure, you know, you finish by 4.30. You don't want to say that out loud, but that's what, really what you mean, right? right? What we're going to try to do, we're going to go to something that's uh, less controversial. Let's go to the book of Jonah. Now, what I want to do is we've talked about this thing called narrative. What I want to try to do now, let's talk through a narrative as though you were teaching and preaching it. Now, granted, please don't hold me. Is that the way you preach, McGinnis? Are you killing me? Not that, because we're going to come in and out of the class, so to speak. We'll make some observations of the text that you could make on a Sunday morning, whether it be Sunday school teaching Bible study, or from your pulpit. I'm going to be low on application because I'm really just trying to get the points of the narrative across. So when we hit those points, we'll pause, step out of the exposition, then come back into it. And almost try to model for you what this animal narrative looks like when we're trying to teach it. Because this is very important now. Because we've talked about narrative, but what does it look like? Now, I'm going to do something that most don't feel comfortable doing. And you say, oh, no, please. (laughs) You can preach Jonah in one sermon. What? Well, it's one narrative, right? Now, I'm not saying you can't preach it in 25. (laughs) Although that would be very talented to stay in the text. But I am saying you can preach it in one message. Because the book was given... As one message. And the punchline for the whole book is not till the end. So if you preach through chapter one, when do you get to the punchline? You don't. Now, if you're good, you can hold and maintain the tension, which we as pastors should do. And then keep building on, building up as we go to chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four. But you can preach this book in one Sunday morning. Matter of fact, when I became pastor of our church in New Jersey, I decided I'm going to preach the whole Bible in one message. You laugh. I can do it in five words. Tree, book, tree, book, tree. I can teach the whole Bible in those five words. Now, you don't get everything, but you're going to get a lot. (laughs) Then I went, I preached the Old Testament. One message. Then the New Testament. Then I went back and preached each book in order. Chronological order is best we can determine. And when I was trying to show the people how everything fits together. And how many times the narrative fits together. Because as many have pointed out, we are talking about narrative. But we're talking about the whole Bible as well. And that is really one story. And it's his story. So we have to look at how all these little stories fits into his story. And that's the exciting part. But we can't make the story say what it's not supposed to say. Because then we violate his story. So let's go into Jonah. Very short book, right? (laughs) 
Remember, the story has been consciously assembled by the author for a calculated effect on the audience. Whoever wrote Jonah wasn't writing this book, How to Run From God. But he was writing a book to tell us something, to tell the original audience something. Many times we want to do, we want to, again, not you, those other pastors, we want to make this book really about don't run from God. Well, that's not a good idea to begin with. But the book is not about that. That just starts the action. And we have to figure out what part it plays in the action. So, you know, as we start any book, any narrative, you do need background. I mean, just remember Star Wars, right? What's the first part of Star Wars movie? In a galaxy far, far, and you start seeing the words come at you, right? And why you need that as a background. So for Jonah, we understand that Jonah is coming from, from Israel. He was sent to a country, Assyria, of a city itself that contained over 120,000 people. Jonah was a prophet during the 8th century B.C., northern Israel. Jonah's mentioned in 2 Kings 14.25. He served as a prophet. He seemed to be obedient as a prophet. And Jonah was living during a time of peace and prosperity that some suggest rivaled the time of Solomon. So that's the background. And he's told, as we'll see, to go to Assyria. You might as well tell one of us to go to ISIS. That's what it's like. The Assyrians were known to flail their captives alive. You're right. I don't know much about hunting, but I've read up on flailing, and that sounds a whole lot worse. (laughs) Assyrians were known to take pregnant women alive, cut open their wombs, and take out their unborn babies and dash them against the rocks. And they would skin alive the young men. And a few decades after Jonah in 722, they would carry away the Jewish exiles with hooks through their faces. If you were an important Jew, you got a big hook. If you weren't that important, you got a small hook. And they would tie those hooks together and just drag you out of the city. So if this is the Assyrians, you can tell that there is no love loss between the Assyrians and the Jews. So around the time of Jonah, maybe the mid-750s, fortunes had turned. Israel had gained the upper hand in prosperity, military strength. Their northern name is Syria, was slowly but steadily declining. Israel enjoyed watching the fall. The last thing Jonah or any Jew wanted was to see Nineveh prosper. Their long enemies was getting their just desserts. So now if you open to Jonah chapter 1, and we can't read the entire text, and it's because it's a familiar text, we won't because you know the story. But in Jonah 1 and 2, we see Jonah, and I call them the reluctant missionary, had a special call from God to go and share the message of destruction. Now you have to ask the question, Jonah, we know your background is Syria. Here, God told you to go to Nineveh and cry against it you would think he'd be first in line because of his hatred for the Assyrians. But what happens? The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amatai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now, we know the story so well that we want to jump to it. I know, I know what's going to happen. I know what's going to happen. Let me tell you the story. Let's slow down. Let's make believe we haven't read it before. And what's the first word in verse 3? Now, in English, it doesn't help because it says, but. (laughs) But Jonah rose. Now, if you pause there, this is the same root that God used in the command when in verse 2, when he says, arise, it's kum. God said, arise, Jonah, go to Nineveh. And what does Jonah do in verse 3? He arise. And everybody says, he's going to do it. And that's what you're supposed to see. 
Now the but gives us some foreshadowing that he's not going to do it. But he rose up to what? And this is the infinitive construct. To flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down, which is a key word. It's a rhetorical device all throughout the book of Jonah. Jonah wants to go down away from the Lord. And it's going to be funny how far down he'll go in chapter 2. You want to run away from me, Jonah? You want to go down? Let's see how far you can hold your breath for. Because I'm going to take you down. Literally. And he also mentions, notice that he mentions Tarshish. How many times in verse 3? How many times? Three times. What in the world is the author doing with that? Why mention the town three times? He's highlighting where is he going? As far away as possible. Now we can spend time where is Tarshish and that's fine. Really what the author is saying is it's far away and he's going there. He's trying to run away from God. Maybe 2,000 miles away. Little did Jonah know how far his disobedience really was going to take him. Now realize, Jonah had all the spiritual benefits of belonging to a covenant community. He heard the word of God. He knew God personally. And later he will even say he feared God. And these points, this points out that truth, simply knowing the truth, doesn't make a difference how truth is played out in our lives. We know the word, right? We're God's people, right? Does that guarantee we're going to be obedient? We may not be as bad as Jonah, but sometimes we're bad nonetheless. We may not run the Tarshish, but we do flee. So what I want to look now is let's look at the characters. Because it's fascinating. I want to contrast Jonah's attitude of obedience and compassion to the heathen soldiers. You know, Jonah had a low level of obedience, no compassion for others. But I'm going to give you a hint. Watch how the sailors act. And ask yourself the question, what is God, what is the author doing by showing you this contrast between Jonah and these sailors? So in Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 through 15, the Lord, you understand the story, Jonah's running and God's going to hurl. And there's a lot we can do with that. Because the conflict is between who? It's not Jonah and the Ninevites. Who is it between? Jonah and God. You got it. They're the main characters in the story. Everybody else is really flat characters. It's what will these two characters do with one another. And as he runs, God hurls this great storm. And then what happens? Well, then sailors became afraid. Every man cried to his God and they threw the cargo, which was in the ship, to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down below to the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen asleep. Really? Anybody ever been on the ocean in a storm? Your military days? Okay, I'm not talking about small seas. I'm talking about seas that are bigger than your boat. How much sleeping are you doing? How much praying are you doing? Okay, my wife and I took a cruise after I finished my PhD. I, she deserved it. <laughs> and we're coming home and we're hitting 30-foot seas. I thought we were on a big boat until 30-foot seas hit. Then I realized, Lord, I want a bigger boat. <laughs> Jonah goes down. He falls asleep. He doesn't care. And notice the sailors, what do they do? They cry out to God. What? How is it that the heathen knows what to do? And the prophet, he doesn't give a lick. Well, it's probably right because he knows he's running from God. However, he doesn't pray. And the author's trying to make that point that he doesn't pray at all. So the captain approached him and said, how is it that you are sleeping? Arise. Now, our English Bible sometimes say get up, but this is the same Hebrew word, kum. Arise. I love this irony. J 
Jonah is so fast asleep when he hears the word arise, what do you think he, his first thought must be? God's found me. Yes, he has. Because God he uses the same term, and I think the author is showing the irony here. And what is he asking to do? Get up and call on your God. Perhaps your God will care for us and we will not perish. Jonah is silent. The sailors immediately turn to prayer. Then what do they do? You know the story. Each man said to his mate, come, let us cast lots so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots and the lots fell on Jonah. This is fascinating. God's hand, not only is in the storm, but in the casting of lots. And it really does show us there's no running away from God. It may look like he's running away from God, but there's no running away from God. And when the lot fell to Jonah, what have they said? Verse 8, they said to him, tell us now on who is count has this calamity struck us, which I thought is an odd question. The lot just fell on Jonah. He is literally the Jonah for the story. Now, okay, then he question after question. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Talk about Steve getting just a question that had twofold. This is fourfold question. And Jonah doesn't even have a chance to ask you, answer the question. And he said to him, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. Well, wait a minute. It is funny because he says dry land. Don't miss the irony here. Because the heathen believe you have a God here, God here. He said, I honor the God who made it all. And dry land, whenever you're on the ocean in a storm, the one thing you want more than anything is to be on dry land. And what do people do when they come off a ship that is rocking? Some say, when I get on the ground, I'm going to what? Kiss the ground. Because that's how you feel when you come off the ship. And notice I missed this point, but look at verse 4. None of our translations have it. It simply says there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. Well, it's interesting here that the author says the ship thought it was going to break up. He personifies the ship that this is how bad it is, folks. The sailors know something bad's going on. Even the ship knows something bad's going on. And where's Jonah? And this shows you part of his heart. Because what's everyone doing on the ship? They're either throwing cargo off, or I got news for you, they're bailing. Because the water's coming into the ship, and there's one thing you don't want when you're on a ship. More water in the ship than there's outside. But Jonah doesn't give a rip. Does that show you something about his heart? Verse 10. Then the men became extremely frightened. They said to him, how could you have done this? Yes, and even the audience is asking the same question. Jonah, how could you have done this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Now, let's step out of the exposition for a minute. Remember what I said about what the author shows us and when he shows us? He doesn't tell us the dialogue between the sailors. He gives a summation of it in verse 10. Then in verse 11, notice, and they said to him, what should we do that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. And what does he say? Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. All right. I know you're all believers. But I want you to put yourself in this position. You're a pagan sailor on this ship. The prophet of God just told you what you need to do. And your life is threatened. Water's coming in. And we're, we're having this conversation like we can have this conversation because we're in a room with no water coming in. But they're, they're rocking back and forth. They're rolling. Everything's happening. 
And they said, all you have to do is pick me up and throw me over. How many in your hearts are saying, sounds good to me. I mean, come on, think about it. I know you're saved. You don't want to do it. But come on, don't you want to throw him over? It's your life or his. And you're pagan anyways. What do you lose? But what did they do? However, the men rode desperately to return to land. (laughs) This has to blow your mind. How is it that the pagan has more compassion than the Jew who knows God and who has received compassion from God? Because remember our antecedent theology? What did God do with these Jews? He took them out of Egypt. They were a people that had known compassion and known mercy. And what were they supposed to do with that compassion and mercy? They were supposed to share it with others. And it's interesting, Jonah said, throw me over. I'm wondering if he cared so much for those people, just jump. (laughs) Why throw me over? Just jump. Would that have solved the same issue? But he doesn't care enough even to do it. And what the author is showing us here is the contrast. And he wants us to see it and ask the question, how are these pagans acting more godly than this Jew. And what did they do? Oh, they were rowing desperately back to shore, but what happened? The sea was becoming even stormier against them. And God says nothing, but he just makes it impossible. Then they called on the Lord. It's interesting here. It is Yahweh, the personal name of God, not just God. And he earnestly prayed, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Talk about conversion quickly. (laughs) This isn't foxhole. This is more ocean hole. But these guys, they went from not knowing to man confessing, hey, Lord, we recognize that this is all from you. Because these guys were seasoned sailors. And they had never, ever probably experienced a storm like this. They've experienced storms, but nothing like this. And they recognize God's hand in it. And what's our prophet doing? Yeah, God's hand's in it, but I'm still not going to obey him. Nah, 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 nah. And that's what the the author is showing us by not telling us what Jonah's response is as all. But these sailors, they care enough. And what did they do? So they picked Jonah up, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Wow. Think about that. The sea stopped its raging. This is a miracle. Because when a storm blows itself out, you have energy that needs to dissipate through those waves. And even if the wind stops, whatever calls the storm, it's either an earthquake underneath or it's a wind fetched. There was only two types of storms you can have. So if the wind blows or the earthquake energy dissipates, then you have flat. But here you have flat immediately. No wonder they feared God greatly. They've never seen anything like this before. And that's why they, once they see God at work, they recognize it. And what do they do? They offer sacrifices to the Lord, to Yahweh, and made vows And it's interesting, they don't make the vows before, like maybe we would. God, if you get me out of this mess, I will promise you. They make the vow after they're out of the mess. Don't miss this. They don't have to. What are you making a vow for? It's literally clear sailing all the way home. But they make vows. Sometimes they think the sailors, and it's not the main point, We say, oh, did they really convert? Yeah, they did. Just look at what the text says. And 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Now, it's interesting. You have a disobedient prophet. They threw him in the water. 
how long are you going to let him go down if you're God before you send a fish for him? Yeah, I like to wait a day or two. I mean, just let him float out there. I mean, he can, you know, it's the Mediterranean, it might be warm, hypothermia is not going to set in for a while. Why don't we just let him learn his lesson? But our God is a God of compassion. And what does he do? He appoints a fish. Now, I don't know how long Jonah was falling into the water, sinking into water before the ship swallowed, this fish swallowed him. But the fish does. And what does Jonah deserve at this point? He's disobedient. What does he deserve? Death. And what does God do? Exercises compassion. That's how we have to read the end of Jonah chapter 1 and the beginning of Jonah chapter 2. If you don't see this as Jonah receiving compassion, you missed the story. Because God's going to say, Jonah, watch. You saw the sailors demonstrate compassion for you. Now you're going to see divine compassion. A man who doesn't deserve it is going to receive compassion because God literally saves him. So we have chapter 2. So Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the stomach of the fish. And I'm not going to go through the the poetry. You know the prayer of Jonah. But I do want to jump down to verse 8. Or let's go to verse 7. Oh, verse 6 too is so good. I descended to the roots of the mountain. I think there's some hyperbole there. But I do believe that he went down. And where did Jonah want to go away from the Lord? Down. And where's God going to take him? I'm going to take you down to the beginning of the mountains. Now the Mariana trenches, five to seven miles deep. Did he go that far? I don't know. Could have. But God took him down, or at least that's what Jonah felt he was going down. Then he said, and his bars were around me forever. The Lord has brought my life up from the pit. Oh, Lord, my God. When I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to him into thy holy temple. So he recognizes that God is compassionate for him. Now, look what he does in verse eight, though. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. This is a dig at the sailors. Yeah, they made vows to you, Lord, but they're not going to keep to it. Really, Jonah? You just get saved, and the first thing you want to do is judge everybody who's left on the boat. And that's meant to show you something. Look at the man's heart. Because that's really what's in question, is his heart. But I, and notice the but here, but I will sacrifice to you. So what they sacrifice to you, that doesn't count. But what I'm going to sacrifice to you is the voice of thanksgiving. That which I vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Ow, this is great. Keep this phrase in mind. Salvation is from the Lord. I don't want to give it away, but this is critical. This salvation is of the Lord. From the Lord means this salvation is the Lord's, right? And the idea is he can give it to whom he wants. And Jonah says, you know, I'm glad it came to me. And all of us are glad it came to us. Then verse 10, one of the great verses. The Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up on dry land. Now, the author throws this in, I think, for a reason. Okay, how did Jonah get out of the fish, number one? But number two, notice how everyone is obedient in the book except the prophet. (laughs) Think about it. The sailors obey. Jonah doesn't obey. The storm obeys. The fish obeys. Who's the one that's supposed to obey? The prophet. You have a fish that obeys better than a prophet. It's fascinating. Now, one scholar, she's a liberal, but (laughs) it's funny what she says. The reason the fish vomited Jonah out of his mouth is because the fish couldn't take any more of the prophet's prayer. 
I think that's reading too much into the text, but I kind of agree with her a little bit. Now, there's some question, did Jonah repent here? There is no words of repentance here. Now, he'll do what he was supposed to do, but I don't see repentance. What you see, this is probably a psalm of thanksgiving for deliverance, but not repentance. And I think that's going to become clearer as we go forward. But up to this point, we have to look at the character of Jonah. It says he's received grace, mercy, and compassion. That's what he's received. Now, what will he do with that? We move to chapter 3. Oh, and this is a picture of Jonah in the fish. Okay, now this is what one, um, if you've ever been to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, uh, there's a theater that does great productions. And the title of their production on Jonah is God Gives Second Chances. That's true, but I would suggest as though that sounds good, it's not the point of the story. It's not second chances because that's not the issue. Now, he does give him a second chance because this is just going to deepen the conflict. Because the man who has received compassion and mercy, what will he do with that compassion and mercy? Which we have to make the point, does he deserve it? No. He doesn't deserve it. Look at chapter 3. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, proclaim the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. So Jonah arose. And notice God doesn't tell him the message. It's going to be, I'll tell you when we get there. It's almost like you're talking to the kids in the back of the car. I'll tell you when we get there. You're on a need-to-know basis and you don't need to know right now. Now we'll skip all the discussion about Nineveh, how big it was. But let's look at it in verse 4. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day and he cried out and said, Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now some suggest maybe this wasn't a message. Maybe this was just from Jonah's heart. I don't think so. I think this is a message that God gave to Jonah. Very short message. I forget how many words in Hebrew, but it's not many. Four or five words in the Hebrew. But look at verse 5. God gives the word in verse 5. Then the people of Nineveh believe God. You know, I've been sharing the gospel for a long time. <laughs> I'm still praying for this kind of response. I just say it and people say, I believe. <laughs> Jonah gets this great response. They called the fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robes from him, covered himself with sackcloth. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly that he may turn from his wicked ways and from the violence which is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn us, turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Wow. What faith. And it happened that quick. But some of us say, I don't know if it was real. Was that heartfelt? When you cover up your beast and you don't let your beast drink water, we laugh at it, but that shows you the seriousness of it. Even the king of Nineveh decides, you know, I believe God and I think he's going to do it. And even here, a great person says, I'm not going to fight with God and I'm going to repent. Now, some suggest, well, here's the conflict between God and the Ninevites. No. This is not the conflict. Remember, it's Jonah. The Ninevites are really flat characters that act as the foil. Who's the one that's been disobedient up to this point? Who are the ones that are obedient? The pagan sailors, now the Ninevites. All 120,000 of them. We can't get one Jewish prophet to obey. But when these folks hear the word of God... They roll over and say, yes, Lord. 
So what happens? Verse 10. When God saw their deeds that they turned from their wicked ways, then God relented concerning the calamity which we had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Now, we can get into all the theological morass of God changing his mind. Notice how the author deals with that. God changed his mind. That's it. That's all the text says. And if you stay in Jonah, you're safe there. Now, people ask, what do you mean God changed his mind? But it almost seems like God's sovereign. He can do what he wants. That's the way the author is portraying him. Hey, I can declare judgment and I can declare mercy. Doesn't he do that with the law anyways? Yes, he does. All right, so we know what God does. We know what the Ninevites do. And notice the Ninevites really just take a backstage. But chapter 4, verse 1. But it, and notice the word, gedol, it's greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. This word great is used often throughout the book. There's a great storm. There's a great fish. And also, by the way, there's a great anger by the prophet. Unbelievable. And what does he say in his anger? And he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was in my own country? Therefore, in order to stall this, I fled the Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Now, therefore, Lord, take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Really? We laugh, but that's exactly what he thought. And you see, this is where you have to hold the tension. God gives, the writer of Jonah gives us the reason that Jonah fled. But it comes out in dialogue with God. Now, why would God want us to hear the dialogue from Jonah's mouth and not hear it narrated? What's the reason for that? He could have narrated that God, Jonah was angry. He narrated that part. Then he shows the anger in detail by his dialogue with God. Why not just continue the narration? What's that? Sinning with his mouth. Because he, you hear it as the reader, you hear it directly from the prophet. There is no mistake that we think, maybe the narrator got it wrong. Like we're reading a newspaper. Maybe that newspaper writer didn't get it right. But when you hear it from the horse's mouth, so to speak, you say, you're guilty, buddy. Really? And that's why we all laughed when we read the story. You just went through chapter 2. You went down to the bottom of the sea. You were in fear of your life. Seedweed was covering over your head. And if you want to know panic, go through that. I've been scuba diving and I've had seaweed. I've got caught in seaweed. I've got caught in underground structures. And I got news for you. Panic happens pretty quick when you can't breathe. And that's what Jonah's going through. But God saves him by a fish. And now, what does he say? In order to forestall this, in order to forestall this granting of your grace and compassion on these people, I fled, in essence, because I didn't want to share that message. Really? And here's the conflict. Do you have a heart like God? See, one would expect Jonah to be ecstatic. Jonah enjoys God's compassion, but doesn't want it shared with others. Have people like this in your church? Now we say, no, 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 no. What about people that are different than you? Should they come to Christ? How about that non-dominant culture person in your church? That's not white. Or that Muslim. Oh, and they're from Iraq. And they're responsible for the death of your son. Do you want them to come to Christ? Think about it. My dad tells stories after World War II. Of people with German names. Changing their names. 
Japanese because of the prejudice of what World War II caused. And there are some people during that time that would have been happy not to see any of them come to Christ. Why? Look at what you did to my parents. Look at what you did to my family. See, Jonah's story is still our story. We have received grace and compassion. Will we share it with others? Are there some people, though, that really don't deserve it? And for Jonah, they don't deserve it. So what if it happens? We'll go outside and see what happens. And the Lord said in Jonah chapter, chapter 4, verse 4, and the Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? And notice, this is a rhetorical question. Jonah doesn't answer it. And we don't have to fill it in because what God is saying, this is a rhetorical question that demands a no answer. Do you have good reason to be angry? No, you don't. You have no reason whatsoever to be angry. Because you just received mercy and grace in chapter 2. And that's the importance of chapter 2. Now, let's flip back to chapter 2. What's that last phrase in his prayer? Salvation is from the Lord. He said it. That's the last phrase of his prayer. Salvation belongs to the Lord. I believe it. Until it goes to you. No, no, no. I didn't mean that, Lord. I just meant it goes to people like me. Definitely not you. Not with people with bow ties. Sorry. (laughs) Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it and the shade until he could see what would happen to the city. See, what Jonah believes here is maybe I got God wrong. Maybe he's not merciful and compassionate. Maybe he's like me. Maybe he's going to see the Ninevites for who they really are and he's going to hit the smite button. Jonah's just waiting for God to hit the button. So God is going to teach the prophet a lesson. So the Lord appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to shade him over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plan. Now watch this, folks. He's in discomfort. God provides comfort. What is that called? Grace. It's called compassion. I mean, if you're going to be angry with me, why not just leave you on the hilltop to bake? And if I was God, I would say, you know what? I think I can make the sun a little bit hotter. (laughs) Come on, we would all think about it. But God just shows even more compassion on the prophet who if you, at any point you'd have to say, Lord, cut him loose. He doesn't deserve it. But God says, no, let's do it. And Jonah was extremely happy. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and attacked the plant and it withered. Now again, what do we have? Obedient worm. It's pretty bad when the author contrasts your obedience with that of a worm. Hey, you have the obedience of a worm. (laughs) Well, that's better than Jonah. And the author's contrasting. So it came about when the sun came up that God appointed a scorching east wind, which some suggest is 16 to 20 degrees above normal. And the sun beat down on Jonah's head, so he became faint and begged with all of his soul to die. Death is better to me than life. Almost like a taste of divine judgment. A little bit. Then God interrupts the suffering, so to speak, and said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And Jonah says, I have good reason to be angry, even the death. And the Lord said, you had compassion on a plan for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. You're just a recipient of compassion. You didn't work for this thing. 
And here comes the punchline. And should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals. You know, by Israel's standards, Nineveh was morally naive. Jonah saw there was good reason to spies Nineveh, where in God's eyes, God, their naivete increased God's compassion. Jonah was glad throughout the book to receive God's grace, mercy, and compassion. But when God's grace, mercy, and compassion went to those that he felt did not deserve it, he's angry. And I love the way the book ends with a question. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there's more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals? And all of us were, were waiting for the prophet to say, yeah, I agree, I'm sorry. I blew it. See, we're waiting for that, but the author doesn't do it and there's a rhetorical purpose for that. And the rhetorical purpose is to leave Jonah out now because now you as the reader have to answer the question because Jonah doesn't. And this is the power of the narrative. The author brought us right into it and says, oh yeah, you should be. I should be compassionate. Boom. There is the punchline. Now you can answer the question. Does forgiveness go outside the covenant community? Yes, it does. But, 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 but they don't deserve it. You're right, they don't deserve it, but neither did you because you were disobedient. Matter of fact, you had direct word from God and you were disobedient. They don't know their left hand from the right hand. And you're saying they don't deserve my grace and compassion? Who are you? You think this is a preach today? And what have we done? All we've done is walk through a narrative and told the story of Jonah and left the people with this question. What would you do? So let's go back to this. The story has been consciously assembled by the author for a calculated effect on the audience. Boom. And that's the effect. He draws us into the story, showing these character contrast. Who do you want to identify with? And it's hard for us because we don't generally have the same hatred that Jonah had for the Assyrians, but in different parts of our history, we have. I mean, do you realize during World War I, sauerkraut was not called sauerkraut. It was called Liberty Cabbage. And it was called Liberty Cabbage. Why? Because sauerkraut was German. That's how much German people were hated. Because of what they were doing. There was even a movement to change French fries to something different. Freedom fries. Really? Why? In our natural tendency... We don't like people like ourselves. And that's why this book still preaches today. And the book ends on purposes, on this purpose, that it might move us. As a person who has received compassion, grace, and mercy, are we reluctant to share those divine gifts with others who are not like us by gender, skin color, socioeconomic level? Whatever. Do I really want to share Christ with that transgender person who can't make up his mind what he is or what she is? Or that homosexual? Or how about that pedophile? Do they deserve Christ? Or how about the murderer? Or how about the person that raped your daughter? See, that's the kind of questions this text is supposed to generate. If you receive grace, compassion, and mercy, is anybody outside of that that you should not share it with? And notice it's interesting. This is not who God can share it with. It's who you can share it with because we're taking the place of the prophet. 
We say, yeah, if God wants to save the heathen, he can do it himself. And that's what some of the missionaries, early missionaries were told. Sit down, young man. If God wants to save the heathen, he'll do it without you or me. Thank you. William Carey. They receive grace and compassion. They won't go to the continents. The question is meant to be answered by ourselves. Biblical literature sought to convince its audience, listeners, and the vice of stories was employed. Much depended on the power of stories because a good story is irresistibly persuasive. Now, I could tell you, you need to share Christ with your neighbors who are not like you. Be blessed. Go do it. Oh, and don't be prejudiced, by the way. And all of you would say, yeah, what? Okay, I'm supposed to do it. But by telling you a story, what has happened? It's gotten under your skin somehow. And you start seeing, maybe I'm not so unlike Jonah as I'd like to think. And maybe I need to take this book to heart more. Because when I see people who are not like me, is my first thought, oh, what will they do to me? What will they think about me? Or is my first thought, I wonder where they are with their journey with God. See, this is why this book still preaches. The story has been consciously assembled by the author for a calculated effect on its audience. And that's where we are. See, and that's where I think you can share this whole narrative, this whole narrative in one message and get the point across. Now, have we looked at all the details? No. And I'd suggest after you do this once, then you can come back and preach it four messages and do each chapter and fill in the blanks for everybody. But this is how the story was meant to come across at one point in one time and, oh, gotcha, to be able to feel the effect and to move us to obedience. How tragic, how utterly tragic to be like Jonah who received grace, mercy, and compassion and not wanting to share it just because he doesn't like the people. All right, questions, comments, criticisms. Is there any significance to the believing Ninevites, Yahweh, and the, uh, no, excuse me, the sailors who use Yahweh and the Ninevites who use Elohim? I'm not sure why the author, I didn't look at it that deeply to know why the change, but I would suggest that sometimes those changes are important. And I would suggest, at least in chapter 1, we see that they go from El, God, to Yahweh. They're not saying he's just another God. They're using a personal name. At least in chapter 1, I can see it. I'm not sure about the change in chapter 3. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a quick question sure. over here. Um, s- some say Jonah's name means dove. And then when you, I've seen commentators go to Hosea 7, verse 11, I think Hosea was a contemporary of Jonah, if I remember right, and it connects a dove to being silly. And so this whole story is really there to show us how silly we get when we become, you know, ethnocentric or whatever and forget our missionary, missional calling. Would, have you heard that or would you? Yes. Okay. Yes, I have heard that. My uh, reaction is... I'll get to that. No. T- tomorrow afternoon, okay. I'm going to go to the Song of Songs. And we'll just generate some discussion for that book. But it says in the song, your eyes are like doves. Yona. Mm-hmm. Same term. So if we're going to take that kind of thinking and take name now as etymology and, and deciding the text, now you have silly eyes. And that's not what the context is saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's nothing in the text that gives us an indication that Jonah's name is important here. Now, where it does become important, not Jonah's name, but in Ruth, Emelech, that might be important. Why? My God is king. Well, it's interesting. If my God is king, 
And that's what his name means. What is the man who believes that my God is king does? He leaves the land. How does that work? There, I think, name possibly has meaning that the author intended. And because he finally, he goes with Mara, there might be something about name. Now, some make a big deal of Chehalan and Mahalan being sickly, and the other one is, what's that? Puny or pining or something like that. And I wonder, I'm saying, did a mom really call their kids that in the Old Testament? I don't know. It could be that the narrator wants us to know in foreshadows that they're going to die. I'm not sure about that one. Uh, I've, I've always kind of wondered, uh, with Jonah being a prophet of the northern kingdom, why do you think he references the temple in his prayer? I've, I've just seen that as unusual. I think because he was a real prophet of God, and that's where God localized his presence. <laughs> so, because, Right. And even when the, t- when the country divided, there was only supposed to be one temple, and those who believed and had faith believed that the temple was in Jerusalem, and they did not go to Dan. In the, in the flow of the canon of Scripture, you have uh, books like Ruth, where in the times of the judges, everybody in Israel was doing what was right in their own eyes, but Ruth, who was seen as the opposite type of Gentile, she's the one who says, wherever you go, I will go, you know, your people, etc. Okay. Wouldn't you see Jonah as a similar foil as far as it's a place in the canon? Uh, because here's Israel, supposed to be God's nation, and this is a tip-off of him going to the Gentiles. And, of course, Israel rejects Christ at his first coming, but the Gentiles receive them at some point or something like that. How would you see... Something like that. I, I know get, that's not what the books is t- teaching, but within the the place in the canon, uh, you have books like that stuck in there. You should have been adoring here during the first session. That I question, wasn't. That question would have worked out really well. Uh, okay. That was just a rephrase of the of what our discussion was. I was flying in. Yeah, I definitely think that Jonah becomes this archetype of what Israel was at this moment. Remember, this is not just to Jonah. This book isn't written to Jonah. This book is written to Israel. And as exactly what Dr. Ice is saying, that because they're like Jonah, this book is written to them, and he stands in for all of Israel. Now, if you want to take the whole Bible and put it together, there's a possibility, and that goes back to our discussion. Again, that's more of a biblical theology understanding than what I'm trying to show is a narrative exposition of the text that's how i would differentiate but did what what's your understanding we we only have the name ninevites um do you see this fitting into the theme because this, this i think this is the capital of assyria uh that's really important historically when we say the assyrians um and we've read the the, the history um but ninevites doesn't quite grab me as much um is that important for how he's structuring the, the discussion? You know, there's a lot of question of how he's using the Assyrians and Ninevite because do you have a king of Ninevite, of Nineveh? No, you have a king of Assyria. So why is he called the king of the Ninevites? Those are questions that I'm not exactly sure. And I stayed away from an exposition because that would go into more detail. If I was breaking this book up, I would cover those things when I got to chapter 3. The uh, idea of the 120,000, a lot of commentaries, I just looked at one that I was bringing up on on my computer, uh, say that just refers to the children of Nineveh, not the the total population. Have you found anything about it? Because it says they don't have their right hand from the left. Yes. See, and that's, we're going to get into this tomorrow when we talk about literary devices. You have to decide how is he using knowing their right hand from the left. Is that meaning non-figurative language, that they literally don't know their right hand and their left hand? Or is it more of a metonymy 
or a metaphor of being morally naive. And it depends how you take the term to what you see. And what they're saying is they're taking it as a non-figurative that they literally don't know their life. And I don't see that in the text. I see it as just morally naive. Yeah, good question. I don't know how relevant this may be, but I know that there's been people who have uh, argued whether uh, Jonah had died in the whale or not. And is it, do you believe it's not said because it's not relevant? Or what's your thinking on that? I think the text gives us no indication that he died. And the reason scholars want to do that is because of Jesus. If they weren't reading the New Testament first and coming back to Jonah... Because just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so will the Son of Man. Well, they say, well, he died, therefore Jonah had to die. There's nothing in the text that seems to indicate that he died, nor that there was any moment of resurrection. So I have to say, respect the silence of God, and there's no indication in the text whatsoever. But that's not an uncommon position. I've even heard people make the argument that's another proof of the resurrection i just don't i don't think i'd go there i just don't i don't think you can build a strong case for that question do you you have any just very general thoughts on how appropriate it is to use narrative literature like this to probe scientific type questions like a lot of people want to get into a big conversation about can a man really be swallowed by a whale and we're all fundamentalists here, you know, we'll go to war over, you know, that. But how do you, you know, I mean, is that, how do you as a narrative specialist look at things like that? Right. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I guess I'm going to be really simple. The text says it. Amen. See, remember, ever since, it's only since the Enlightenment that we've gotten away that we have to prove things in a text that they can possibly happen. This was a miracle. I mean, first of all, you have to have a fish that's pretty big to swallow a guy. And then the whole thing about atmospheric pressure. I mean, do you realize that when you go down, for every 33 feet you go down in the water column, you pick up 14.7 pounds per square inch of pressure. So go down to 100 feet, you've picked up three atmospheres. at 44 pounds. Go down deeper than that. How did he breathe? I mean, you start asking questions like that and say, I'm going to prove this, and you realize, (laughs) Jesus said it. No, I'm sorry, God said it. And I think we have to stay there. But I know it's uncomfortable to say we can't prove it. I mean, there have been studies, or there's one uh, book that mentioned that somebody fell into a whale that was on the side of a ship that was getting um, carved up, and he, he survived in the whale. That's not quite the same thing. And even if they didn't survive, that doesn't blow my faith in Jonah. So it's a great question. And I think we have to move our people away because I think a generation, my earlier generation and those before me tried to answer those questions instead of leaving them saying, you know what? God says this, we have to believe it. I mean, how do you prove an ax head floating? All right, let's say that we have a story of a man being swallowed by a fish and living for three days. All right, we got one. Now let's go back and do all the rest of them we have to prove. And the axe head one is one of the harder ones. I mean, I want you to take a stick, find the axe head, at least you know what pond it went down in, take that stick and throw it on the water and wait. Make sure you clear your calendar because you're not doing anything for a long time. And then make that axe head float. Somewhere we have to say, folks, God did something miraculous. I think we're kind of uptight over that one because of the New Testament, Matthew 12, you know, connects Jonah and the whale to the resurrection, you know, which is a, uh, obviously a fundamental of the faith. So that's why, you know, that issue is kind of important to a lot of people. Right. But that's, again, read the text and I take, I almost wish this wasn't being taped. Read the text without your first thought jumping to the New Testament. What does the text want you to hear 
from the author. Then once you know that to the original reader, then let's start doing our integration across books and across testaments. But this has to have first priority in our understanding. And then we could do biblical theology and things like that. But let's make sure we understand this text first and the implications of that text. All right. Well, if there's no other questions, let's give Dr. McGinnis a hand. And um, according to a literal, grammatical, historical reading of the schedule, we reconvene at 730.